Today's reading is from Luke 12, 13 through 31. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Brett. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. Uh, If you're new, welcome. Uh, My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here as well. Uh, We're starting a new series. It's going to be a very short series, just two weeks, in Luke chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, you should turn there. Uh, We'll be there these next two uh, Sundays. Uh, But before that, I just want to talk about a couple things. First of all, um, my my voice is on the mend. If you were here last week, I was starting to lose it and... uh, I actually woke up uh, Monday morning and could not talk. There was not an utterance that could come out of my mouth. And so Jackie had a wonderful day on uh, Monday. It was a double holiday. You know, it was Martin Luther King and I couldn't talk. So she kind of had her way all that day. But uh, it is on the mend and and, uh, it's starting to feel good again. So I'm glad for that. Um, The other thing, this is a big deal. I think. Um, maybe not as big a deal to y'all uh, as the nine o'clock people, but um, you know, we, we started this uh, sacred space initiative. We're going to be building a new sanctuary, going to break ground uh, sometime uh, late, late spring um, this year and complete it sometime mid-spring uh, next year. And we're excited about that. And the reason is because we're just, uh, we've outgrown this sanctuary. Uh, for a long time, we thought, <clears throat> well, if we built this other building, that'll be enough. That'll, um, uh, that'll ease the, the, the tension we have in these rooms because we're just starting to overflow. And, and, uh, and then we began to realize that waiting another 16 to 18 months for that to happen probably isn't going to work. 
especially in the nine o'clock. If you've ever been to the nine o'clock, uh, it's just jammed up every single morning. So we started wondering if there was something we could do in the interim. In fact, and then we decided we needed to do something. So the elders and the, and the pastors have been talking about this for quite some time. We've researched it. We've looked at all the different counsel that other churches and church counselors have uh, for us. One of the things that they told us is you never want to uh, mess with something that you're already doing that's doing well. In other words, don't change the 9 and the 1045 service. Just add something to that. And so um, we finally decided that the best thing that we would do is, is to add a 7.30 in the morning on Sunday uh, service. So we're going to start that on February 5th. We're going to start having three services in the morning. Uh, one will be at 7.30 in the morning. Uh, it'll be just a little bit different than the other two services that we do in that um, instead of five songs, you're going to get three songs because we have to do it a little bit uh, we have to do it in a little bit shorter time, but you'll get the music, you'll get the sermon, you'll get ge generally everything you get everything every, in every other service, uh, just a little bit uh, shorter. Now, I know that some of you are sitting there going, I'm at the 1045, there's no, okay, there's no way. Well, we've actually heard that there are some families who have started going to the 1045 because the 9 has been so crowded that would maybe uh, welcome a 7.30. I also personally know several people who have told me over the years, I get up at 4.30 or 5 on, on Sundays, and I have to wait till 9 to come to church. It kind of messes up my day. They're very excited about coming at 7.30. And then I just happen to know some of you in the 10.45. Um, this might... The 7.30 might work for you because, you know, you'll be on your way home to go to sleep at about 7. So you could just come to the, just come to the 7.30. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so we are starting this new service, and that's how we're going to handle um, trying to uh, create some room, especially in the 9, but perhaps also in the 10.45. We're starting that in two weeks. I will tell you this. This was especially encouraging uh, to us uh, when we took it to the staff uh, this was the pastors and the elders talking about, and then we said, all right, if we take this to the staff and we don't have buy-in from the staff, we're probably dead in the water. And their reaction was really encouraging. Um, instead of asking all the questions as to why we shouldn't or couldn't do this, they were asking all the questions on how they could help to make sure that we did this well. That was really encouraging to us, so we have full buy-in from the staff as well. So that's really good as well. Thank you for that. So uh, let's get into our, our message today. And as you can see, we're going to have some other things going on as well today. But as mentioned last week, today is one of two Sundays we're going to talk about Jesus. Jesus is teaching on wealth in Luke chapter 12, and this morning it finally hit me. I've been, I, I've been struggling with this idea that Jesus is teaching on money or Jesus is teaching on wealth in Luke chapter 12, and there is a sense in which he's doing that, but there's a greater sense. I finally figured out this morning, especially as I look through my notes for this sermon again, uh, there's a greater sense in which he's actually teaching about our hearts and how they're oriented towards wealth and the things of this world more than specifically teaching on wealth and money. So be thinking about that as we go through these next two weeks, that it's, these messages are really about how our hearts are oriented towards the things of this world. Uh, Billy Graham once said, I don't know if any of you remember this guy, Billy Graham, but he once said this, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of his or her life. And again, so you hear that even in Billy Graham. He's saying, look, 
this money thing isn't about money per se. It's about our attitude towards it. It's about how our hearts are oriented toward uh, money. So for today, we're going to look at two major themes. In verses 13 through 21, we're going to look at an eternal perspective. And then in verses 22 through 31, we're going to look at contentment. And, and both of these passages are connected by a therefore that Jesus says in there. So they're related to each other, but we're going to kind of take them uh, one at a time. So let's get right to it. Let's look first at uh, Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. So this guy comes up to Jesus. Someone in the crowd comes up and says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I want my money. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? Now, I just want to stop there and just point out the irony. Jesus is the ultimate eternal judge. And yet he's saying right here, who made me judge over this? He's saying, listen, I'm about eternal things. I'm about the eternal perspective I'm not necessarily interested in your practical little issues that you have here. And then he eventually tells a parable and then goes on for more teaching beyond that to help make his point. I just, I just, I had to point out that irony. So then Jesus said to him, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do now that I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So, the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is, uh, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. So, uh, this first section is the eternal perspective. These verses here uh, point out that the truth, that truth and reality calls for an eternal mindset. It calls for us to orient our hearts toward what truly matters. It's not that these other things don't matter, but we need to be cognizant and prioritize what truly matters. And this really does set up the second section that we'll look at today, verses 22 through 31, where Jesus begins to teach about how contentment is one of the, one of the truly great secrets to life, a secret that's, that's hidden in our world but is not hidden in the word of God. And so he, he comes to this parable, and here's what Jesus says to this guy in response. This guy says, hey, I want my money, Jesus. Get my brother to give me my money. Jesus says to him in response, I'm not going to decide this for you. I'm not going to judge for you, but this is how I want you to think about it. I'm not going to do anything for you other than try to get you to think a different way about this. So Jesus says to him, what's important is not what you, that you get what you want, but rather that you guard your heart against what you want. It's not important that you necessarily get what you want, but that you guard your heart against what you want. Guard your heart. So let's talk a minute about guard your heart. The reality is is that false gods are constantly trying to worm their way into our hearts. And right after Jesus says 
that we should guard our heart, he tells a story about a guy who is guarding his money at the expense of his heart. He's guarding his money at the expense of his heart. It's interesting, Jesus does not say, be on your guard against your wealth. He's talking about your heart. And again, if you've been around here for any uh, measure of time at all, you know that this is one of my things that I'm just hammering all the time. The single uh, most often misquoted Bible verse ever has got to be 1 Timothy 6.10. People say this all the time. The Bible says money is the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says our love for money is a root of all sorts of evil. What Paul is saying is that how our heart is oriented toward money is the problem. But we like blaming money because then we have no accountability. It's easier to blame something else, some inanimate object, some, some amoral uh, object than it is to actually search our hearts because we might be the problem. The problem is how we orient ourselves towards money. Money's not evil. Uh, money can do wonderful things if your heart is oriented toward it in a healthy way. We need to guard against orienting our heart towards money and power and status in an unhealthy way. And then in this parable, look at the, the plethora of first-person uh, first pronouns. I, me, my. We need to understand that self-counsel is deadly. Self-counsel is a fool's errand. Uh, we, need to be, we need to remember that uh, Jeremiah, God's prophet in the Old Testament, in chapter 17, says, Our hearts are wicked and deceptive above all things. Who can understand them? Uh, the, the, the easiest person to give misguidance to is ourselves. And, and it's so easy for us to only go to ourselves because how often has this happened to you? Search your hearts because I know it's true. That you're afraid to go and ask anybody else for counsel because you're afraid they might give you different counsel than your own heart has been giving you because you like the counsel that your heart is giving you even though that counsel isn't necessarily helpful. And then you look at verse 15. I'll discuss this more in a minute, but here's a little bit of a preview. One of the things we have to remember about what Jesus is teaching throughout chapter 12 is that Jesus is not anti-ambitious. Jesus is not anti-aspirational. Uh, uh, this is not Jesus saying, you don't have to worry about the future. Don't bother planning for the future. And he is certainly not calling for high-capacity people to become complacent. Jesus' message is never about complacency. But this message is a pro-wisdom and pro-proper priorities message. Here's a key, something to just be thinking about. We need to remember that just because something is deemed less important than something else doesn't mean it isn't important at all. It can still be important. It's just a question of priorities. Just because Jesus, the gospel, faith, grace, and the kingdom of God are important, it does not mean that vocation isn't important. It doesn't mean that capacity, ambition, and production are not important. That's not what Jesus is saying. But Jesus here is filling us in on important truths that far too many of us take for granted. I'll mention three. Number one, we should write our plans in pencil because God holds the giant cosmic eternal eraser. Second of all, in everything we do, we need to remember that Jesus is supreme and sovereign, and ultimately a truly valued life is one that is submitted to him first, and then all of these things come to us.
And then number three, far too many of us <clears throat> go to Jesus only for practical solutions to our problems. But when we go to Jesus for these practical solutions, as this guy does with his brother, Jesus tries to take us deeper, deeper to help us realize that our biggest problem may just be that our heart is not properly and rightly oriented. Consider this. Many of us are anxious about money, yet careless about our souls. Many of us are anxious about power and status, but we're careless about what that anxiety is doing to our souls. Uh, the rich fool is a fool because he thinks he owns his soul, but God owns his soul. And so if he's going to be anxious, that's the one thing that he should really be anxious about is his soul. So now here's the second section to grasp, verses 22 through 31. And so Jesus turns and says to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, not about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. Think about birds. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet, and yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you is being anxious? By being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried, for the nations of the world all seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added unto you. So this is now about contentment. And these two texts that we're doing today, the one we just did and the one we're looking at now, they're connected in thought, context, and principle by Jesus' word, therefore. He's saying, since this is true, therefore this is also true. So the answer to the brother in verse 13 is you need faith, contentment, and a perspective that prioritizes the right thing. You don't need me to go and tell your brother to give you the inheritance. And I think this quote is really helpful. Worry is when we pray to ourselves. Prayer is when we take our worries to God. <clears throat> if you know anything about the Old Testament, <clears throat> excuse me, and especially the book of Ecclesiastes, a book of wisdom that King Solomon wrote, and King Solomon said, look, everything that you think in this world is going to fulfill you and doesn't, I've had all of those things more than you'll ever experience, and I will tell you, it won't fulfill you. It will not fill that God-shaped void in your life. Only God can do that. And so he writes Ecclesiastes to help us to understand that. So Solomon is really present in this text. It wouldn't surprise me if Jesus was thinking about what Solomon wrote as he was teaching this. Uh, I mentioned to some of you in, uh, recently um, I, I just finished a few weeks ago uh, Will Smith's autobiography. 
I didn't read it. I listened to it on audiobook because Will Smith read it himself. And so I thought that would be great to listen to um, because all of the emotional inflection would be in the right place. And he also, because it's an audiobook, he inserts uh, clips from his uh, early music and some stuff from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and some of his movies. It was really an entertaining read, but I don't know that I can recommend it because it's also tragic. I, I found that Will Smith is, is one of the brightest, uh, smartest people I've ever listened to. I mean, he's got some incredible insights. Some of them, it's like he's channeling Solomon. The tragedy is that he doesn't live by his own wisdom. He's still completely unfulfilled, searching for that thing that's going to fill that God-shaped void in his life. That's the tragedy. But it's not going to stop me from quoting him from time to time. Listen to him at his Solomonic best, best here. He writes this, The problem with money, sex, and fame is that when you don't have them, you can justify your misery. You're all like, yo, if I just had this or that, then I would be good. But then you get that stuff. And it still doesn't fill that void in your life. And all you're left with is the terrifying thought that maybe you are the problem. That's just true. Now, here's one thing I want to do. Um, I want to make sure that we're talking about the right kind of anxiety here in this passage that Jesus is talking about. We need to differentiate between physiological anxiety and the type of anxiety that you and I conjure and coddle ourselves, the kind that we go out and seek to have anxiety over because we believe that the things in this world are going to satisfy us and we just don't have enough yet. We still need more, more, more. We're struggling because wealth, status, and power hasn't given us what we want. There's a difference between that and physiological anxiety. And, and I guess this is the best way I can, I can describe it. Let, let's say you're on, this is kind of dark but, and morbid, but let's say you're on a commercial flight and suddenly all the engines go out and your plane is going like this faster than it's supposed to go. And you know you're on your way out. But you've got that three minutes before you hit the ground, okay? Okay. Um, you're going to be anxious, right? It's okay to be anxious. I can't imagine being on a commercial flight, and as it's going, I'm a pastor, remember, and as it's going down, I'm sitting there like this. Everybody else is screaming and yelling, and I'm sitting there like this. Consider the ravens. <laughs> Not going to happen. That's a physiological anxiety. It's the same thing if you're a parent and you have a teenager and you get a phone call and you find out that they've been in a car accident and you have no idea um, of the injuries or even the deaths in the accident and you have to drive down there. You have no idea. You're going to be anxious. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the anxiety that you and I conjure up and we coddle over things that he says aren't eternal and shouldn't be given that kind of worry and that kind of anxiety. So he says, consider the raven. Now why? Because ravens, like other creatures in God's creation, do not fret about money, power, status, or security the way we do. Okay, so it's just a comment on our lack of faith and trust in God. There's this great poem by Paul Miller. I love this. And it's a short poem. So those of you who don't like poetry, I'll be right back with you in a second. But it's a great poem. I don't even like poetry, and I think it's a great poem. Okay. Said the robin to the raven, 
I should really like to know why the anxious humans rush and worry so. Said the raven to the robin, Friend, I think that it just be, they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. (laughs) The birds are pointing out that we've got God and we don't even realize it. They seem to understand it. Now, Jackie and I are dog people. We've always had dogs. It's not that we don't like cats. We like cats, but I'm allergic to them. So we have hypoallergenic dogs. I don't think there's any such thing as a hypoallergenic cat, but we have dogs, okay? And here's the thing that we've discovered about our dogs. Over 35 years of owning dogs, we have two right now. Usually we have three. Over 35 years of owning dogs, these dogs live in constant joy because they know that sooner or later, we are going to feed them. They just know that. And I'm not saying we're God, but to them, we're like God. And they have faith that eventually we're going to come home and feed them. And so they constantly live in joy. That's, God is saying that's how we should live because God will take care of us. Um, I, there's no way I can talk about contentment without going to this passage. It's Philippians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi from prison. And Philippi has been through a famine, and they have had terrible economic times, and they haven't been able to send him any money to help him with his expenses while he's in prison. But now the economy is getting better, the famine's over, and they send him a little bit money. So he mentions it at the end of his letter. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me back during the famine, but you had no opportunity to show it. So he's saying, thank you for sending me the money. And then he gives us a lesson on contentment. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned that whatever situation I am in, to be content. He has learned contentment. Now, most of us wish that contentment was a spiritual gift, that God would just give us contentment. It's not a spiritual gift. This is one of those spiritual disciplines. This is something we have to learn. This is something we have to go through. This is something we have to ask for God's counsel and wisdom and will on. He says, I've learned I've learned whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In, every, in, in any and every situation, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of facing abundance and need. I can do all things through him, Jesus Christ, who strengthens me. He's saying the key to contentment is my relationship with Jesus, not whether or not I have this stuff. He says, I've had plenty of money and I've been on the top of the mountain in my vocation I learned how to be content in the midst of that, and I've had no money, I've been hungry, I've been in the valley of my vocation, and I've learned how to be content in that because my contentment is focused on Jesus, which is an eternal perspective. And then verse 31 is the payoff verse. It's not that these things are bad. I said that earlier, I'm going to say it again. Again, this is not an anti-ambition message. It's not anti-aspirational. It's not even an anti-material message but it is an anti-materialism message, and there's a difference there. Verse 31 is the payoff because it explains that the life we are called to live for our best life possible is a life that has the appropriate priorities and perspectives. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all of these other things will be yours because you understand them in priority. It's not seek only the kingdom of God and ditch everything else. Ditch your plans to succeed. Ditch your plans to, um, to earn money. Ditch your plans to get a promote. He's not saying that. He's just saying seek first the kingdom of God. It's when Paul talks about contentment. 
he's certainly not telling high-capacity, ambitious people to take their foot off the gas. In fact, I think it's ironic. I would argue that Paul might be the most ambitious person to ever live, and he's the guy who teaches us about contentment. He's the guy who got up every morning and did everything God called him to do. He did it with passion, and he did it with fervor. He worked hard, and yet he knew about contentment. And notice that contentment, again, is in all situations of life, on top of the world and in utter despondency. He's merely reminding us that the things of this world are not all there, uh, uh, that, that will fulfill us, are not going to fulfill us in those ways. And that this God-shaped void must be filled with God. It can only be filled with God and not in the things of this world. So, for added discussion and insight, I'm going to invite up one of our uh, congregants here. His name is Josh Swift. Let me explain why I'm doing this. Uh, we at, in Arcadia are just are really blessed in having so many resources in the marketplace of people who have great wisdom, insight, and a gospel-centered view of how they view the marketplace that I wanted to be able these two weeks to also share that with you as well. And Josh uh, Swift is one of those guys who's really good at this and has great stories to tell, and so I want to invite him up. Please welcome Josh. Some of you were like, wow, that sermon was really fast. Frank is learning. Now, here we go. We're not that lucky. Yeah, right. Good to see you, Josh. Thanks for coming up yeah. here and spending time. And, Thanks for having um, me. You know, I know you don't get to relax now on Sunday morning. You're actually uh, jumping in on this, so we appreciate you coming up. Uh, got a series of questions here for you. I gave you a little preview on them so you weren't completely blindsided. Yep, good. All right, so uh, give us a two-minute Joshua Swift story where you grew up, schools, family, significant athletic achievements. We'd like to hear about that. Yeah, of course. Okay, so um, I grew up in the Midwest in a small farm town in central Illinois, a town called Forsyth, Illinois, population about 2,000 people. Um, I left there and went to school out in Indiana at Greencastle, um, DePaul University. Um, I did an internship my senior year in college in the month of January out here in Scottsdale. I drove my truck from Indiana to... Arizona, and I showed up at my buddy's house where I was staying, and he was in shorts playing basketball in his driveway with, like, palm trees lining the street. <laughs> and it was unfathomable to me that you could actually have 70-degree weather in January anywhere. Um, and so once I got offered a job out here, I immediately took it, and that's how I ended up out here. Um, athletic athletic ach- achievements. Athle- yeah. So I played, I played football in college, but I think my, you know, my biggest achievement thus far has been coaching five- and six-year-old girls' soccer. Um, <laughs> done that for the last three or four seasons, and we've almost got out of the first round of the playoffs a couple times. So it's been... That's awesome. Our, um, our youngest daughter and her husband and family live in Iowa, but used to live in central Illinois. So after the first service, they watch on YouTube. Um, after first service, she texted me and said, where? Where in central Illinois? Say, yeah. You forgot to say it in first yeah, service. Yeah. And so I told her foresight, and she said, she's, an a- she's a high school athletic trainer. And she said... Oh, yeah, they're really good in football. So I guess that's a legacy of Josh. It must be, yeah, Yeah, it must be a legacy. For sure. 20 years ago, yeah. So um, how long have you been at Redemption Arcadia? Tell us uh, who you're married to and your kids. Yeah, so uh, married to Lauren. Uh, She was here in the first service. Uh, When we first started dating about 10, 11 years ago, uh, we started coming to uh, Redemption when we were down on Thomas. Right. And... um, We've been here ever since, so that's been, it's, I think it's 10 and a half, 11 years. Close. Yeah. Um, 
We've got three daughters, Corinne, Hadley, and Stevie. They're uh, seven years old, six years old, and three years old. Uh, they usually wear matching outfits. They're running around, you know, trying to scam Emmy out of prizes for the memory verse that they didn't memorize. <laughs> but they're are getting hot chocolate after service. Um, yeah, so that's yeah, the crew. They're cute. Uh, vocation, businesses, and expertise. Yeah, so, um, you know, I've had a, a bit of an unconventional career. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be part of a handful of really well-funded, uh, fast-growing startups in the real estate industry and, and technology space. Um, you know, my, I'd say my area of expertise, uh, you know, is kind of running at, at, at the high level, that, you know, the forest from the trees, and then translating the execution um, from this high-level strategy into execution, um, leading big teams, pulling together resources, vendor networks to, you know, rally big groups around a mission and go achieve that mission. Um, the last kind of two major things I've been involved with were I was part of the single-family rental uh, creation post the Great Recession. Uh, I know that gets a lot of bad rap in the press today, but, it, you know, it's, it's actually a very big need, need for our communities to have high-quality rental housing. So I was part of that. It was funded by a private equity firm out of Los Angeles. Um, we actually ended up going public within three years of, of starting that venture through a, a reverse merger with another private equity firm, um, and our team kind of took over uh, the majority of the senior executive positions there. Um, and then we ran it as a public company for um, two and a half years approximately, kind of proving the asset class that it was an institutional investment asset class, and we're one of the first groups to do that. And then we ended that with a, or I ended that with a public-to-public um, -public merger. So we, our public company merged with another public company that was owned by, or created by Blackstone at the time. Um, and so right after we kind of announced that, I raised my hand and said, I'm good. Three private equity firms, six years, Sprint. Um, you know, I'm good to, to not be part of the go-forward team. But, you know, one of the reasons I did it is I got a call from Zillow to um, come in and help create their um, iBuying division, their home buying and selling division. So Zillow was moving from kind of a web-based tech platform into the physical world of real estate. And they were bringing, uh, or asked me to help bring in team members to help them with that uh, transition, that creation, that creation of that division. We ran that really, really uh, hard for three and a half years. And then the board made the strategic decision to, to shut that division down. It, you know, it wasn't really a good core part of Zillow's business. So I spent um, nine months winding that down and have spent kind of the last eight months just doing a few things here and there and just figuring out what I'm going to do next. So you kind of went from like 10 employees to start with to 1,500, something like that? Yeah, yeah. It, um, I mean, it was a crazy growth. I think we hired 1,500 employees in the first three years of, of that Zillow program. We opened 25 markets in 24 months of operations. Um, we were building tech. We were pulling resources, data science, and technology resources from all over the company. And so they asked you to build that, and then they asked you to wind it down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That was fun. What a, yeah, fun. <laughs> Not my idea of fun, but yeah. yeah. Wow. It, was, it was a great, it, it was an incredible experience. Yeah. But. So um, now I may be wrong here, but I, but, uh, but I think um, this might be the most challenging thing for a person like you, and I have a bit of a setup for this question. You've had a lot of success, and that's good. Your character and person—I mean, I've known you all all ten and a half, eleven years that you've been here. Your character and personality of insight, drive, and focus. 
is behind a lot of your success. But also there's an old adage, and I believe it's true, if you're not moving forward, you're either dying or dead. Uh, to be more graphic, if a shark is not moving, it's dead. Okay, that's just one way to know if you're going to be attacked or not in the water. And now many people like, might look at what you do and what you've accomplished, and they might ask this, okay, why keep the accelerator on? Why the desire to win? What more do you have to prove? Well, one reason is I don't think you're interested in dying. But uh, another reason is, this is what I'm trying to get at. What's, what, what are some other reasons? How does someone like you, and there are many like you, so you'll be speaking to a lot of people here, how do you balance the genuine need to keep your foot on the gas with the gospel desire, principle, and requirement to have an eternal perspective and try to live with contentment? Yeah. Um, you know, I'd, lo I'd love to sit up here and say that the only reason... Um, I'm keeping my foot on the gas or that I've got that balance perfectly figured out is to, you know, honor God and glorify him in the work in the marketplace. Um, you know, that's definitely a big part of it. I've been fortunate enough to be in front of a lot of teams that provides a lot of opportunities uh, to do that. But if I, you know, if I'm honest with myself, I, you know, I enjoy working. I'm driven. I, I don't do well with a lot of idle time. Um, and, and frankly, I enjoy the success that, that comes from uh, that productive work. Um, and that success feels good. It, you know, it's a chemical release. It's a dopamine release in your body. You're actually feeling that dopamine go through your, through your body when you achieve that success. And, and the status feels good. It's great to, you know, have that status. And then the financial success that comes along with that, you know, it provides a lot of optionalities uh, in life uh, and a lot of opportunities to be generous uh, as well, too. So um, I, I like to think about it in the context of a professional scoreboard and, you know, kind of going back to a sports analogy, it, it, how do you measure success in the professional environment? Well, it's really kind of in two, for the most part, status and, and financial success or money. That's kind of say, oh, this person's successful. Um, now, there's some exceptions to that, obviously. Um, but I think it's really easy when you're in your professional environment to get caught up in that and be focused on that professional scoreboard. And, and that competitive professional environment it is, is one that, um, you know, it, you're driven in the success and the materialism that follows that typically, it's real easy for those things to become your idols. Right. And, and I think, you know, you have to live in that tension of the kingdom of God scoreboard with the professional scoreboard and how do you do that? And acknowledge that there's a tension there. Um, one thing that's helped me there is I have kind of a, a constant refrain or a drumbeat um, that goes on, and it's, you know, it's, it's from the Bible. It's not a direct scripture, but it's related to a lot of scripture in the Bible of, of be, be in the world but not of the world. And I find myself repeating that over and over when I'm in a lot of situations uh, where I'm like trying to acknowledge that tension, saying, okay, am I prioritizing things the right way or making the right uh, decisions? Um, so it's been that, that refrain has been something that's, like allowed me to remind myself of that health, that, that tension that exists and making sure that I'm putting the proper prioritization um, in place. And, you know, I think um, I've been blessed at a, at a really early age to know what it feels like to lose those things, um, that status or that, you know, that wealth. Um, and that's just by nature of my career, right? I've been in fast growth, high growth environments, peaks and valleys, and, and my career certainly hasn't been this 
up and to the right, level of success where everything's been great. There's been a ton, tons of ups and downs. And, um, you know, one thing that I've kind of taken away from all that, or that I've learned directly, is how society uh, is attracted to that box that you're put in. So, um, you know, your position, your status, your influence, the perceived authority or power uh, that you have. They're not really concerned about who you are as a person. They're, they're thinking about, oh, there's, there's Josh, this senior executive at Zillow. That's the box that they put me in. They didn't know who I was, right? And, you know, I think that those things, when those things are gone, that, that box that you're put in, then, then what are you left with? You know, you're, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, the rest is just vapor. And I, I've lived that. And it, I've been fortunate enough to live that um, and see that, yeah, when you're not there anymore, those op- like, you're just perceived differently from society. Um, so that's really helped me put an internal perspective uh, on my career and, and helped me balance that. Not that I got it perfectly figured out by any means, but it's definitely helped me. And I feel like every year that goes by, I get better and better. So there's tension with that. And you should acknowledge the tension instead of trying to get rid of it. Um, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the number of people who want to come to church uh, kind of as a last resort because they're tired of having tension in their life and they think that somehow Christianity will alleviate all the tension in their life. And then you read scripture <laughs> yeah. and Jesus says things like, be in the world but not of the world and, and in this world you will have trouble, right. but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so we need to acknowledge attention and, and keep our priorities straight. I think that's great. Um, when you hear the word contentment, what do you hear? And is that a fair assessment of biblical contentment when you hear it and automatically attach maybe an emotional meaning to it? Yeah. Um, you know, I think in the professional uh, world, the word contentment a lot of times means you know, or can be taken to mean lazy or, or uh, lack of motivation, lack of drive. Complacent. Uh, complacent, right? Um, lack of ambition. You ne- and you never hear anybody in the professional environment bragging or talking about how content they are. Like, <laughs> just not a recipe for success when you're trying to grow your career, right? Um, but, you know, in, in my men's group, we've actually been studying Ecclesiastes the last four months. We just wrapped up. We were doing Tom Schrader's Priority Living series on contentment, which is awesome. Which is really all, good. all recorded. Um, so this is fresh on my mind. I don't want anybody thinking that I actually know what I'm talking about up here. But, <laughs> but we just learned this. So, um, But I think you said it in your, in your sermon about proper prioritization and how it's okay to be driven. It's okay to, to um, be ambitious and strive for professional success. You know, you're using your God-given talents, and we're, yeah. we're called to do that. Um, but when those things become your first priority, it's impossible to be content. And I've lived my life where my number one priorities were on career growth, wealth accumulation, achieving that status, and there's no rest in that. You're, you know, you're constantly comparing yourself to other people, and the fear and the anxiety that comes around with possibly losing those things, it's absolutely uh, no rest. There's a, there's a huge void, huge gap yeah. there, right? Um, so, you know, one story, uh, not the la- one of the companies I was at, not the last one, um, I was fortunate enough to be uh, present in the boardroom quite frequently with um, some real estate titans, uh, billionaires and, 
guys and gals worth hundreds of million dollars and, and hear them kind of indirectly bragging about their societal status and comparing their private jet capabilities to one another. <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're uh, by all worldly measures, these are some of the most successful people, you know, in real estate or, or um, you know, on that professional scoreboard, if you will. But you look around and you can just see that they're not satisfied. There's still a lot of greed in that room and just a huge hole there. Now, there's exceptions all the time, but you know, that was, a, that was pretty common um, in that boardroom. So I think, you know, just to wrap, it's kind of exactly what you preach today about um, uh, pro-wisdom and pro-proper prioritization. Yeah. And it's okay to be driven, it's okay to be ambitious and have the success that follows that, but know that the, God, the kingdom of God comes first and there's rest in that. So, you know, you can take away my status. You can take, take away my wealth. Um, and it's all going to be taken away, you know, with the great equalizer of death. Like, yeah, it's all gone. Right. It's vapor. Um, but you can't take away Jesus in my heart. That's right. That's good. Uh, so what have you learned in the last year about God and contentment? Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure this is why you invited me up here. One of the reasons, yes. Yeah. Um, so it's been an interesting year. You know, I mentioned at the beginning, it's actually 18 months, frankly, but um, I spent the last nine months of my career at Zillow winding down a business that we had built for three and a half years, 1,500 employees, laying them all off, uh, selling 20,000 ha- uh, houses, uh, de-risking the company from kind of any fallout from this, you know, major decision of, of getting out of this business. And it, you know, it was draining. Um, uh, and, you know, I ended that in the summer. So the past 18 months, I really haven't been working full time. I've been working on a, a few things here and there and a couple of deals that, trying to figure out, you know, what I want to do next. Um, and I'm also, you know, I'm in my early 40s. So I'm kind of going through that midlife evaluation phase of what do I want to do next with my career? You know, uh, my kids are kind of coming of age where they're starting to realize what's happening in the world and yeah. how am I prioritizing those things? So, you know, I feel really fortunate, you know, to have a lot of time this past 18 months to really reflect on, okay, what, what's next? Uh, and I know a lot of people don't have that opportunity, so I feel blessed to have that and, and to have an awesome wife and Lauren who, you know, really is understanding. Um, so big lead into, you know, what do I think this last year about contentment? And God. So first on God, I would say the more I'm in the word, the more um, um, I'm talking to God through prayer, spending time here in church, spending time with uh, my solid group of friends, you know, obviously the closer I am to God. And um, it's, you know, for me, it's really easy to kind of put those as a secondary and be lackadaisical about them. But when I do it and lean into them, like God is good. And the clearer life gets, it's amazing. And you can't do it on your own. Yeah. You know, um, I, I told this story in the first service. When I learned about, uh, when we were shutting down our division at Zillow, I got a text from our COO, hey, you need to talk to you at 9 a.m., which usually meant something big was happening because it was a last minute kind of 20 minute heads up, hey, important call, I need you to drop what you're doing and top on. And he just laid it on me, dialed into Zoom, laid it on me, hey, uh, you know, subject to a few things, we're shutting down, you know, your division. And the wave of relief and relaxation that, like, left my body when, that, when he said that was indescribable. It was definitely God's hand saying, hey, I got gotcha. you. And here's a clear head. 
you're gonna have to go do some real crappy work, but you're gonna figure it out with me, right? So that was just, I know, like you said, like a lot of guys have gone through that and probably you know, resonate with that. Yeah, so th just the idea of having so much pressure on you and then that call comes in and it, and, and it, it could be viewed as tragic and yet you felt this great relief. This that was great the, fir pressure the first reaction. I mean, there was yeah. definitely yeah. whatever the seven stages of grief are that you go through, but the first one was, <laughs> thank God. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> um, and then, you know, ask, you ask on contentment. I think there's two things there. You can be content uh, when you're going through a tough time. Yeah. And that's not to trivialize any tough times, um, but it's about how do you put that perspective and prioritization in place. And then, you know, contentment does not mean complacency. Right. And, you know, I think we're called to work. It's God's design. And, you know, that's what we're supposed to be out there in the marketplace trying to reflect God's image. Yeah, good. Two more questions. Uh, Risk-taking is a big part of participating in the marketplace and in business. Um, I remember back when I was in the marketplace and uh, we were running this chain of women's clothing stores and we had two stores in Las Vegas. We'd have to fly up to Vegas uh, once a month for a couple of days and do business up there. And, and almost always people would hear, hey, Frank's going to Las Vegas. And they'd come and they ask me, hey, are you going to do any gambling when you're up there? Yeah. And I always say, we already are. We have two stores in Las Vegas. Right. Business is a gamble. Right. Okay. You know, there's no net. So... Um, Risk-taking is a big part of that. How might the Jesus perspective on wealth, business, ac accumulation, and mindset influence you when it comes to taking risks in business, or does it? Yeah, no, certainly. You know, I think with any business decision, you're putting that decision through some sort of risk-reward rubric or framework. Um, and, you know, there's varying levels of decisions and how important are they. And I think there's a lot of decisions that, you know, frankly aren't that important, and you just kind of you know, go with them and, and make the decision. You're not really asking yourself, hey, am I glorifying God in this decision? Um, but I do think that, that Jesus' perspective is much broader than kind of any risk-reward rubric. Right. Um, it's overarching over your, how, how you operate, how you show up to work as an employee, how you run your division, how you run your business. It's that Jesus' perspective. And to me, it's like, am I doing the right thing? Um, you know, am I taking advantage of an opportunity that I shouldn't be? Am I putting somebody at an unfair disadvantage? Um, am I being fully honest with myself and my business partners? And, you know, it's what we're talking about. It's that proper prioritization and that Jesus perspective that guides all the decisions, frankly. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, last question. I ask this of anybody that I am interviewing, and so I'll ask you, too. Is there a question I did not ask you that you, that I wish, that you wish I had asked? And if so, what would be the answer to it? Yeah, not, not really a question, but when I was here earlier this morning for the prayer uh, session, which was awesome, by the way, first time I've done that, it's early, so yeah. uh, trying to get three kids out of the door. We're coming in here on two wheels at 9 o'clock, trying to <laughs> make the 9 o'clock service. Um, you know, uh, Tyler Thompson spoke about, you know, how God's already in front of us fighting the battles we don't even know about. And you think about that in the context of, you know, everything else with professionalism or prioritization and Man, is that comforting. So yeah, I want to put that out there. That's really good. Well, Josh, as a brother in Christ and as somebody who I really do admire in, in the marketplace, I've always been a big fan of yours. I just appreciate you willing to come up on a Sunday and, and share with us and give us some of your insights. So yeah. would you please uh, thank Josh for coming up? Thanks. Thanks, Thanks
So we're going to move into our time of reflection and response um, and communion. If our communion servers would please uh, come forward. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's with his disciples and he takes the bread and he breaks it. He gives thanks and he said, this is my body and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after that, he picked up the cup, the cup of thanksgiving filled with wine. And he said, uh, after he gave thanks, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so if you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, you know that you have confessed your need for Jesus, but you also know that you celebrate that you have Jesus. And so that's what we get to do right now. When you step out into that aisle and come forward to take these elements, you're confessing your need for Jesus, but you're also celebrating that you have him. So let's do this right now during this next song.
the stories time and time again Of how you're good and how you resurrect the dead That there's not a soul that's outside your reach And no anxiety that you can't calm in me My head and heart may fail me when the waves are all that I see Help my unbelief Jesus, draw me closer Closer Jesus, draw me closer To you I pray the prayers and song the song I've asked for healing just to lose someone And even if you don't decide to move I will trust in you My head and heart may fail when this moment so much for being here together today with one another and with the Lord.
Next week, remember that our service times will be the same, 9 and 10.45, and it's the following week, February 5th, that we'll begin our 7.30 service in addition to the 9 and 10.45. Please hear this benediction that is based on the words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 and 34. May you be a people that seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And may all of God's good gifts be added unto you. May you not be anxious about tomorrow, and may tomorrow be anxious enough for itself. And may God's grace be sufficient for each day, this day, and the days to come. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.